deciding on where to attend medical school, apply for residency, or enter practice. Two is a mobile app that enables you to find the perfect fit where to live, work, and play. Download Two, T-O, at the Apple Store. Medical school comes at a high cost. Are you ready to take on over 150 grand in debt? Welcome to the AMSA AdLib Podcast, where you'll hear from med students and experts alike. I'm your host, Christine Camizio. Maybe you don't have to. In fact, you could leave with none at all. Today, we'll welcome Dr. Aaron Segill to the podcast. My name is Aaron Segill. I'm the Associate Dean for Recruitment and Admissions at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences, the F. Edward A. Bear School of Medicine, America's Medical School. It's a lot. It's a mouthful. I'm also a military family physician in the Army of the last 17 years as well, so I wear multiple hats. I do admissions, I do recruitment, I do teaching, and I do patient care. Joining the Armed Forces is one way to have your medical school paid for in its entirety, meaning you'll graduate completely debt-free. But what's the trade-off? Before you trail off into a deep self-reflection wondering if this could be right for you, Dr. Segill joins us to answer some of those tough questions about who this may be the right fit for and who it may not be the right fit for. So Dr. Segill, generally, can you give me a quick overview in your words of the school itself and who it serves? So the Uniformed Services University has been in existence since 1972. It was built, created along with the Health Profession Scholarships Program to ensure that we had a ready stream of physicians able to serve the Army, the Navy, Air Force, Marines, um, and all of our associated sister sister uniform services and what the school of medicine is all about it's trying to find those service oriented young men and women who want to be a part of the military health service of the public health service to essentially take care of those people that are safeguarding our liberties both here in the united states as well as around the world so that's it in a nutshell Mm -hmm. and we can certainly flesh that out depending on where your questions take us you mentioned HPSP, the Health Profession Scholarship Program. How does uniformed services relate to or differ from that? So the Health Profession Scholarship is this wonderful program that's offered by the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force. The Public Health Service has a version of it called the National Health Service Corps. And essentially what these scholarships do is they will pay for any accredited MD or DO program in the United States or in Puerto Rico. And in doing so, they'll pay for all of your tuition, while you're at that medical school. Um, They'll also give you a $20,000 signing bonus. That's really nice, so you don't have to eat ramen noodles every night, so unless you like ramen noodles, in which case you can eat more. And then it essentially gives you a $28,000 a year stipend uh, while you're in medical school. One of the things that appeals to people about that program is essentially the military contact while you're in medical school with the Health Profession Scholarship is really, really minimal. Um, They will either before you start medical school or in the summer between your first and your second year give you some basic officer training. So we're not talking like basic training where you're crawling underneath uh, barbed wire and your face is in the mud. Um, We're talking basic officer training. It's, it's It's a lot different. And then during your fourth year of medical school, there may be either a little bit more training or there'll be the opportunity to rotate at military treatment facilities. And then afterwards, you go into a residency program, just like the graduates from USU do, and then you serve in the military. Typically speaking, it's a four-year commitment unless you do a longer residency, in which case their commitment's just a little bit longer. USU is different. So with USU, students apply to us through the AMCAS, just like they would for uh, the University of um, 
uh, Florida or Penn State University or any of the other ones. And essentially with our program, we don't offer a $20,000 signing bonus. So that's a little sad. So mm-hmm. you, you can't see this podcaster land, but I've got a little sad face on right now. And um, But we do uh, uh, commission all of our students as active duty military officers. So that's really cool. You get to wear a nice looking uniform. Uh, people stop and they thank you for your service. And then uh, you're paid $64,000 a year to be a medical student here because you're uh, essentially commissioned as either an ensign or as a second lieutenant, depending on your service. And then the primary focus of the education at USU is to turn out fantastic physicians. And so you get the same type of medical education you would get anywhere else. You learn about the cardiovascular system, you learn about the pulmonary system and all the rest. But in addition to that, there's also this military overlay because we're not only trying to make great physicians, we're also trying to make uh, physician leaders, military medical officers. And so in addition to your typical topics, you're also going to receive training in uh, military medical leadership. You're going to learn about tropical medicine because we take care of soldiers and sailors that are all over the world, and we have to know about the diseases endemic to those regions. There's going to be a huge focus on preventive medicine. There's going to be a huge focus on public health. And then in addition to that, you're also going to get some unique skill sets that all military physicians should have, like how to run an ultrasound machine. By the time 16 months are over at this medical school, every student knows how to diagnose whether someone has intra-abdominal bleeding or if they have a deep venous thrombosis using an ultrasound machine. That's really, really cool. I know we're only one of a few schools that does that. And then uh, in addition to that, we also teach combat medical skills. And we not only talk about it, we actually do it. So um, students learn how to intubate. Students learn how to uh, do venous catheterization. Students learn how to put in chest tubes. And then we do that not only in the school, but we also do it on these field exercises where we essentially take all of our students once their brains are full. So that usually happens about the sixth week of medical school. You just can't take anymore. And we ship all of our students up to Pennsylvania where essentially for a full week, uh, they'll be practicing combat medicine through simulations in the woods. It's fantastic. I just got had the opportunity to go up there this year and it was wonderful. And that's just the first 16 months of medical school. After that, we do our mandatory clerkships like every other medical school does. And those are those sites are not just here in the Washington, D.C. area where the school is located, but they're also at our military treatment facilities in places like Hawaii or Texas or California or North Carolina or Florida. And then after that, we have this opportunity to do 18 months worth of electives, which can be both domestic as you look for your residency, but we also have opportunities for students to go to Germany, Spain, Korea, Guam, um, Thailand, Peru, uh, Kenya as well. So um, for those that want a little bit more of an immersive military experience, that's where USU is a little bit different. And then our service commitment, because we have a lot more that we offer to our students, is seven years as opposed to four. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that early on you said that you don't complete basic training. Is there any sort of physical requirement? Do you check in at any point throughout school? Yeah, so that's a great question. So when you apply to USU, and actually when you apply to the Health Profession Scholarship as well, you have to pass a basic physical examination. Um, it's not a push-up or sit-up test. It's just looking for pre-existing conditions that might disqualify you from serving as a military physician. And so that's part of the process of applying to the university or to the Health Profession Scholarship. And then essentially while you're on the Health Profession Scholarship, there's a couple times where you get tested on your physical fitness. Um, here at USU, we actually test you quite a bit more on your physical fitness. So just full disclosure to all of your listeners, um, we require all of our students to exercise twice a year. So, 
<laughs> so I, I know. So we really encourage them to exercise a lot more than that. But um, here at USU, we don't have barracks. Students don't live on campus. They live all throughout the Washington, D.C. area. We don't want to do anything that's going to get in the way of their academics. But to meet military standards, we, we do the physical fitness test twice a year. So you really should exercise a lot more, but <laughs> twice a year at least. <laughs> What does the breakdown look like in USU uh, in respect to Air Force versus Navy versus Army versus public health service? Of the three military services, the Army tends to be the biggest. Mm -hmm. And so right now, the Army class is generally speaking anywhere between like 61 to 65 students each year. The Navy and the Air Force are just a little bit smaller. They have a a little bit fewer people. And so they have anywhere between like, say, 50 to 53 students each year. The public health service is very, very interesting. We have the option of going all the way up to 10 students in the public health service if we receive funding from the different public self-service activities. Currently, the agencies that have chosen to fund those spots are the Indian Health Service with two spots and the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease with another two spots. And how that breakdown falls, is that something applicants are deciding when they're applying? How does that work? When students are applying to the Uniformed Services University, they're simply applying to the School of Medicine. And then when they come on their interview day, we ask for them to let us know what their service of first choice preference is. And then when our committee reviews their cases to decide on whether they're accepted or not, the committee does that without looking at the service preferences. So that information is blinded uh, before it gets to committee. And then once the committee decides to make the acceptance offer, we look to see what the student has indicated as their first choice preference, and we offer them a seat in that service if there's a seat available. If there's not a seat available, they go on to the wait list, and then as seats become available in their service of first preference, we offer them those spots. You said that there is a seven-year commitment after training. What does that full commitment include, and what do students get back on their end? Yeah, so the... um, The way it works out is that every student that graduates from USU is guaranteed an internship. And over 80% of our students actually get their first choice residency. So um, that works out well for, for almost everybody. That residency time does not count back towards the commitment. The commitment payback actually starts after you complete your residency. Um, So just to take an example, if someone were to come to USU um, and be a family physician like myself, they would go to a family medicine residency. And then afterwards, they would speak with the specialty leader or consultant in that specialty. Typically, it's a physician um, just like themselves, just a little bit more senior. And then working with them, they would find their first duty location. And then typically every duty location that we assume, we're usually there for about three or four years. And then we have the opportunity to select a new location. So for a USU student fulfilling their obligation, they're probably going to live in two different places, but they're going to be practicing their specialty at each of those different places. Um, Woven into that will be the occasional deployment as well. And deployments are when we go places that we wouldn't necessarily want to take our family. So this is Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, So you wouldn't want to necessarily take your family to a war zone. Um, But it also includes places like Haiti during the recovery from the recent hurricane, or maybe out to Japan when they were recovering from the Fukushima Daiichi um, uh, typhoon and all the rest like that. And so in those cases, those happen, it really depends on specialty, but 
a good guesstimate, every three to five, possibly six years, you'll be asked to do one of these things where you'll deploy to render your service to the Navy, Army, Air Force, or Public Health Service. And then those deployments last anywhere, generally speaking, from anywhere from three to nine months, sometimes 12 months as well. And then you come right back to where you were stationed before. Mm -hmm. So that's how that, that works out. So through this, you mentioned the residency process. How does that look in comparison to a traditional medical school and applying for residency, since you're not going through that traditional match process? Correct. We go through the military match, and so we tend to match earlier than our civilian counterparts do. So all of our students have to put in their list of specialty preferences uh, by the 15th of October, I think the date is. And then they're notified, this year it'll be December 8th, they'll be notified of where they're going for their residency. Um, one of the biggest things that's different is that we only have so many residencies in the military. So we have the full spectrum. You can do dermatology in the, res in the military, you can do radiology, you can do pediatrics, internal medicine, and all the rest. And we also have a full range of fellowships uh, as well. But we don't have as many programs in each of the specialties. So for instance, in um, say in the Navy, there's two emergency residency emergency medicine residencies. And so you would apply to those two residencies. And I think um, the Navy requires you to apply to a minimum of five different places. And so after applying to emergency medicine, emergency medicine, it may be that you would apply for uh, a transitional year, which is a general uh, medical surgical internship that allows you to apply for a residency afterwards. Um, or you might apply for, maybe you have an interest in internal medicine also and you apply there too. And then essentially you do your interview rounds just like you would on the civilian side. And then you put in your list of preferences. And then the way that the military match works is that the decision to take you into a residency is based on um, how you rank a residency, how they rank you, and then your board scores play into it. Um, your, your class, uh, uh, your GPA, your class standing plays into it as well. And then um, certain things like uh, prior military service, whether you have publications, presentations, and some other factors play into it also. And so that's how our match process works. So as opposed to applying to like 40 different residencies trying to land one, um, we typically apply from anywhere to five to eight and call quits. Do you find or feel there are limitations there? You said there are, uh, you know, maybe only a certain number of programs available. That's, a, uh, that's also a very big question. So uh, the, I guess the most honest answer I can give you is just to kind of give you the numbers and then maybe let your listeners uh, compare that to the civilian system. So each year, the Health Profession Scholarship uh, Program is graduating anywhere between, say, somewhere between seven to 800 um, future military physicians. And then USU is graduating its cohort of about 171. And that that limited number, so as opposed to 20,000 people on the civilian side applying for all the civilian residencies, we have less than 1,000 applying for the military residencies. And we have space for all of them as well. And so those who are applying to the most competitive specialties, quite a few of them will get it, but some won't. But that's why we have our transitional year system. And so um, the transitional year, this general medical surgical year, essentially allows people to, who either choose to do it voluntarily, which quite a few people do, or that don't get their first choice specially, it allows them the opportunity to essentially um, buff up their credentials so they're more competitive for that specialty the second time around. So maybe they didn't get dermatology the first time around, but they do this, this general medical surgical internship and they reapply for dermatology. 
And at that point, maybe they don't get it. They go and they serve as a general medical officer, which is a unique feature of military medicine where they're maybe the doctor for a ship or maybe they're a doctor for a Marine unit or maybe they're a doctor for one of our infantry units. And then that time is counted as a credit towards them getting their residency. And so the next time around when they apply, they get it. Mm -hmm. And so even though 80, over 80% of our students get their first choice coming right out of medical school, many, 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 many more get it if they're patient and work through the process of, of trying to achieve it. Okay, great. So I'm wondering now, kind of down the road, post-residency, post-commitment uh, for both USU and HPSP, if you know what percentage will go into civilian practice versus what percentage will stay in a career of military medicine? So the easiest answer here is that eventually 100% of people will no longer be military, right? Because there's going to come a point where the military mm -hmm. kicks us out. It's like, thank you for your service. <laughs> <laughs> You've now aged out of the military. Go find a civilian <laughs> job. Um, I believe the last number I saw was that about somewhere uh, over 60% of USU graduates go on to a full military career. Mm -hmm. The number is lower uh, for the health profession scholarship but it was also designed to be that way as well. Uh, we were, when USU was stood up, it was designed to give us our career cadre of military physicians. And from the health profession scholarship, we expected some physicians to go on for a full career. We also expected many, many more to leave after their term of service was done. Do you think that what a physician is learning in this context uh, will eventually translate well into civilian practice? I think so. I think so. One of the things that the students are learning at USU, in addition to the traditional medical education, is they're learning how to be leaders of the healthcare system. And one of the things that you know about medicine, that I know about medicine, having experienced it, is that medicine's a team sport. And so our students are learning how to be leaders of that team. So from the day they leave the military to the day they step into the civilian healthcare system, they're ready to hit it with, hit the ground running, metaphorically speaking. They're already used to being essentially the captain of that ship or the or the leader of that that team and mm -hmm. so i think that's an extra benefit that you get for doing either usu or being in the health profession scholarship and having the opportunity to be exposed to our military health care system are there specific courses taken throughout the time at usu dedicated to leadership or do we see more of an overall attitude or kind of school vision towards leadership yeah, you know, there's there's both the informal and the formal leadership training. So it's easiest to talk about the formal leadership training first. So we have a Department of Military and Emergency Medicine, and they're responsible for the leadership curriculum here at the School of Medicine. All of us are responsible for it to some extent, but they really they really own it. Um, but essentially, they weave this curriculum all throughout all four years of the medical education. And so there are formal classes where they talk about military leadership. Um, but also what they do is they bring in leadership into the clinical scenario as well. Um, and as a way of giving you an example, in the fourth year, our students go to Operation Bushmaster, which is a simulated field exercise. In the two weeks that lead up to that exercise, our students are learning how to plan medical operations, how to receive the warfighter's plan, and fashion the medical response to best support that. They're also learning how to create courses of action to analyze the risk and the threat associated with each, and how to determine which is the best one to follow. They're learning how to brief other medical personnel. They're learning how to brief non-medical personnel. And when they go out to Operation Bushmaster, they're put in different leadership positions, and they're graded on how they do in those positions and offered formative feedback as well. And so that's that's part of the, the longitudinal leadership curriculum. And they have other opportunities to do these field exercises throughout medical school. 
informally speaking, if you were to go around the university right now and just take a five-minute walk, you would walk past the office of the uh, former acting Surgeon General of the United States, um, who led a, a multi-thousands-of-person um, uh, health enterprise. You'd be walking past the former Surgeon General of the Army, the, the former uh, Director of the Defense uh, Health Agency. Yeah, you'd be walking past a member of the National Academy of, of Sciences. You'd be walking past multiple people who've deployed to Iraq, Afghanistan, who responded to Katrina, who responded to Sandy, um, who were there for the Ebola outbreak. These are all people who have led and they're immediately available to our students at all times. That's really cool. Overall, now that we've taken a look at the big picture here, who do you feel is the right fit for this? What kind of person? Yeah, so one of the things I always try to tell people is that altruism is not a something you can switch on or switch off. And when you're applying to medical school, you're applying to go to an innately altruistic profession. And we look for evidence of that when you apply to our schools. So I would say the in addition to showing us that you have the academic ability to succeed in medical school, you have to show us that you have uh, explored the medical profession. So you should have time where you've worked with physicians and with patients. But then you also have to show us that you're deeply engaged in your community as you define it. Um, being engaged in your community for some people means being heavily involved in student organizations or student government while they're in uh, undergraduate or maybe master's studies. For other students, it means being involved in their community at soup kitchens and at homeless outreaches. For yet others, it's being involved with Habitat for Humanity or being involved with their faith group as well. We look for evidence of knowing what you're getting into, the clinical exposure, but then we really look hard at how you've been helping other people. Because at the end of the day, the USU product and the HBSB product has to be a physician who's willing to put um, her or his creature comforts aside to take care of the airmen and to take care of the mission. And so when we look at an application, we have to see that you've been already dedicating your life to service. And on the other side, who do you feel this is not for? Well, you know, the two things I think that always help to make, there's actually three. So to, to succeed in a military career, you really need three things, at least in my book. Other people might disagree with me. You need to have confidence. You need to know how to do your function. Um, but that one you kind of assume in most people. People are usually assumed competent until they prove <laughs> otherwise. <laughs> and some people do. <laughs> And then in the military, I think you have to be flexible and optimistic. Military life, and life in general, to be honest with you, will constantly throw you curveballs. Things that you just didn't anticipate will come in, and there's the real potential for them to break your day. But if you're one of those people that when those difficulties come your way, if you bend without breaking and you spring back, then you're the right fit for the military. Likewise, I think optimism is absolutely key. We will always give you situations through your military service where you will have to adapt and overcome. And if you're the kind of person that walks in and things aren't working right and you just say, woe is me, and you just want to bury your head, it's going to be a really, really long seven years of payback. And so I think that USU works for people who are interested in the idea of military service and in having their medical school federally funded. But they are already flexible and optimistic. So who shouldn't do USU? Um, if you need for things to be a certain way day after day after day, USU is not a great fit for you. 
if you tend to go heavy into the Eeyore side of the personality spectrum, it's probably not a great fit for you either. And then, you know, all, all cheekiness aside, if you have a real reason to be in a specific location for the vast majority of your life where you have strong, strong family ties, or maybe you're taking care of your, your father or your mother, um, or, or you um, don't like the idea of potentially having to move every three to four years, you're looking for a, a different type of stability, then, then maybe this is not the way you want to go. But in that case, then maybe the health professional scholarship is more for you because it's a four-year commitment, and maybe that's more amenable to your future plans. USU is great for the person who is not only willing to serve, but also has a certain sense of adventure. Because truly, it's one of those places where if you sign up, you have the opportunity to see the United States and see the world as well. And so for me, I think I have undiagnosed ADHD and wanderlust. So this has been a great career so far. Living in Germany, living in Washington State, Georgia, Afghanistan, doing missions to Ecuador, and being in the D.C. area now. I love it. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Segill. I really enjoyed this opportunity to speak with you. Thank you very much, Christine. I appreciate you having me over here. AMSA AdLib is brought to you by the American Medical Student Association. I'm your host, Christine Camizio. This episode was produced by Pete Thompson and myself. Joshua Caulfield is the show's executive producer, and Dr. Kelly Tibbert is AMSA's national president. We hope you enjoy this episode, and thank you for listening. Prepare yourself. Your future is now. AMSA's convention is the biggest meeting of the year for future physicians. From match prep to clinical skills practice, This event is designed to help you get where you want to be in the next stage of your career. Make sure to join us in Washington, D.C. this February. Visit amsaconvention.org to register now and save.